My name is Aram Vartan. I am the Dungeon Master for God's Fall, and welcome back to episode 16, The History of God's Fall, part 2. This episode is going to be different from our usual ones. It's not an all-play session. It's just me today talking about the history of the God's Fall world. So it'll be very similar to the first episode. If you haven't listened to that one yet, I would suggest going back and listening to that first before you listen to part two. And after the episode is over, I'm going to do a DM's corner. I'm basically going to talk outside of the game just in my own voice about some of the decisions I've made about God's Fall and how I've crafted this world, and also try and answer some of the questions I've gotten from you about the world. We'll be back next week with the whole cast and the capital city of Ani, where the players fully begin to recognize their place in this new world. But before we get to any of that, we have another shout out to Battle Bards. BattleBards makes premium audio for all of your RPG tabletop needs, and this week we're going to talk about some of the soundscapes they've put together. Deserts, both by day and by night. Large cities, by day and by night. A druid's grove. the hollow and closed sounds of a dungeon. Inside the walls of a castle during a storm. Even a dark elf empire. So if you want your tabletop RPG to sound like God's Fall does, check out BattleBards.com. And while you're online, check out GodsFall.com, especially for this episode. We've got images and maps. This is probably one of the ones you're going to want to read along. And all of the text I'm reading now is online at GodsFall.com. While you're there, if you want to support us through our Patreon account or by buying a t-shirt, we would truly appreciate it. Every cent you guys spend goes back into the podcast so we can increase the quality and keep knocking out these episodes. We've also got forums up now. A lot of you have been asking about a place where you can go and, I guess, talk about the game. I'm honestly not sure. But for those who want to, there's a forum now on godsfall.com. I check in with it daily, so if you have any questions, post them and I'll get right back to you. But that's enough housekeeping for right now. Let's get to the podcast. The History of God's Fall, Part 2, The Republic of Wessel. The heart of Wessel boasts hundreds of square miles of flat, lush farmland fed by a web of rivers and lakes that allow the country to serve as the breadbasket for the rest of the known world. Comprised of 13 independent states, the Republic is ruled by a council that shares both power and responsibility for the nation as a whole, distinguishing it as the only true representative democracy within the five kingdoms, even as a handful of the states withhold that freedom from their own citizens. Aside from sharing matters of politics and trade, the states remain largely independent, each boasting its own currency, traditions, and laws. Several closely guard their borders, requiring travelers to carry various documents or a purse full of golden bribes in order to gain passage. 
The capital of Tidewatch serves as both national government and major trade hub for the Republic, centering most of the nation's power in the north while the majority of food production and resulting wealth resides in the south. Beyond the verdant rolling crests of the southern mountains lies the gloom, a largely uninhabited swath of rainforest and swampland stretching from coast to coast. Travel further south and grass gives way to rock and grit as the sand hills rise to meet the towering ash-black walls of the coal spine. Sun and wind conspire to scour this land, leaving it largely dry and barren, inhabitable only by the last tribes of orcs that have sought refuge in its punishing bleakness. Of these outcasts, two major centers of power have arisen, the relatively peaceful orcs of Clan Flatrock and the bloodthirsty raiders of Clan Deathhammer. The Kingdom of Brennus. The Kingdom of Brennus is united in name only. The Wild Elves and their Ironwood rest firmly within Brennus's eastern borders, though they pay no tax on their land and allow no official boot to tread within. It is the same story again with Ryland, a mountainous island nation of independent dwarves and elves to the north, while the south remains mostly wild and lawless. The continent is split into west and east by a narrow mountain range that itself is halved by a tranquil lake over 50 miles from shore to shore at its widest point. Below this freshwater inland sea lies the Great Southern Plain, a vast expanse of shrubs and king's grass that stretches from coast to coast. The plains rise to meet a line of steep hills stained with rust from the thick veins of iron that run through them. The nation's true might lies around the Sapphire Bay, a deep well of water surrounded by rings of dense coral and bordered by much of Brennus's western coast. The entire bay is rich with sea and plant life, enough to support a trio of powerful trade cities, Cape Triple Tail, Oath Harbor, and the capital of Skyhaven, one of the oldest human cities in the Five Kingdoms. The palace within its brightly painted walls has been ruled by the same royal family for over 500 years, its throne currently occupied by the young king, Arion Vallis. The lands south of the Crimson Hills are split again by the leading edge of Titan's Ridge, separating them into the rainforest of the east and the marshland tropics of the west, both overrun with bands of savages. Utea. A continent second only to Kadar in sheer mass, Utea was blasted down to its bedrock by Sephor in the last minutes of the Gods' War, leaving a titanic slab of scorched stone that cradles a lush, primordial valley. The cataclysm that the God of Sun unleashed upon Utea was so vast that it tore the very fabric of reality, opening portals to other worlds and times from which countless horrors spilled forth. It remains to this day a wild, untamed place inhabited by barbaric tribes that cling to the valley and beaches, fortifying themselves against the monstrous creatures that have claimed this land as their own. Impossibly huge birds known as rocks inhabit the steep cliffs, while giant lizards long thought extinct roam the arid plains. The dangers of Utea do not end at its shores as scavengers descend upon unwary ships and brazen smugglers that stray too close to the jagged black rock forest of the Thousand Fang Bay. On the west end of the Great Plateau sits a temple forged from the same blood-red stone it rests upon. Four gigantic towers mark the corners of the structure, each dedicated to one of the original first gods. 
fire, yatar, air, ather, water, emitaph, and earth, O gun. Infested with otherworldly creatures and surrounded by savages, the temple has sat abandoned since the gods' war, its treasure and knowledge yet unclaimed. Ryland. Just north of the Ironwood, nestled in the claw of the spine of the sea, sits a mountainous island nation known as Ryland. The fortified city in the clouds was the first built by both dwarven and elven hands, founded by those who viewed human ambition as a grave threat to the entire world. This belief has only strengthened after the God's War, leading Ryland to declare itself independent from the Five Kingdoms. Any dwarf or elf who seeks refuge within her walls is granted such. Other races are tolerated, but humans are killed or captured on sight. Once a mighty volcano, Ryland has been dormant for nearly two millennia, her crater filled with water and wrung with a forest of ironwood. The city rests midway up the southern edge of the island, snaking around to terrace paddy fields along the north and east and the snow spire to the west. The freshwater basin above runs in rivers around and through the city, plunging down tunnels and over water wheels crafted by dwarven hands to harness the combined power of water and gravity. The snow spire sits at the top of a cliff to the west of the city, a 600-foot triangular spike of white marble resting atop a hexagonal base. A cascade of 20 glass balconies ring the tower, evenly spaced from the foot to the very top. It was constructed with the help of King Jacob Cladivo using raw god-forged marble from the projects left unfinished by Zavon, a gift to the people of Ryland for their help in thwarting the world-conquering ambitions of Gal Hadir. The tower serves both as a repository for knowledge and a vault for some of the most powerful magical artifacts ever constructed, a shining counter to the coal-black walls of Baros's Union. Gal Hadir. The greatest dwarven city ever forged sits carved from a mountaintop in the far north of the Kadarian Empire. Her dwarves were the first to be given magic, the first to build golems, and the first to set warships sailing among the clouds. Gal Hadir is insular and xenophobic, run since her inauguration by a series of great houses with ancient family bloodlines. Much as with Ryland, the God's War has intensified Gal Hadir's militant nationalism a smoldering anger fed by the stinging rebuke at the hand of Zavon. Recently, there have been reports that the mighty lava forges, dormant as part of the peace accord set forth by Zavon, burn once again. Others have reported seeing airships in the sky and great constructs forged of steel and brass powered by steam crashing through the frozen tundra. The mightiest of all Gal Hadir houses is Clan Stoneburner, led by King Thoric, a brilliant scientist obsessed with thermal power and magic. He has led his people for 200 years, tunneling deeper and deeper into the mountain his city rests upon, while transforming the citadel above into a church of machinery and production. His people are complex, willing to sacrifice anything for progress while fiercely defending the traditions and histories of their individual bloodlines. Outside art, philosophy, and religions are considered to be propaganda from other dwarves, blasphemy from the elves, and laughably barbaric from all others. The Shatterland. A 
great chasm tore apart the center of Kadar during the Gods' War as Zavon and his lover Death fought desperately to defend the kingdom he had created from the burning hand of Sephora. The lifeless, salt-encrusted canyon that remains is named after Mordecai. Fort was born from his destruction as the God of Death sacrificed himself to oblivion, giving Zavon the power he needed to end the Gods' War and shield the Five Kingdoms from the resulting Worldstorm. The canyon is deepest near the center, a straight drop of over 20,000 feet to the rocky pool of brine below. High tide sends waves crashing over the edges of the canyon on both ends of Kadar as a narrow lake of seawater mixes with thermal vents to create a bubbling cauldron. Steam rising from this acrid brew carries an overpowering stench of sulfur and coats the walls and mouth of the canyon with a thick layer of bright yellow salt. While the salt is highly prized, the caustic air disintegrates both metal and wood in short order, leading the majority of the harvest to be done by the hands of the poorest. The vapors are just as tough on men as machines, leaching color from the skin, hair, and eyes, and shredding the lungs with boils and lesions. A trio of rivers that empty into the maw provide the only lifelines to a cluster of desperate villages along the northern rim. The Void South of the Five Kingdoms and past the walls of the Spear of Jardin sits the Void, a crater of rock and ash a thousand miles across that rises in the center like an infected boil. Nothing lives in this forsaken place save for the massive ashworms. Ancient, mindless creatures forced to the surface from deep within the Earth's crust during the Gods' War. They forever patrol the void in solitude, swimming through the blackened rock as if it were water in lazy, counterclockwise circles, each beast inhabiting a ring of space as their territory that they fiercely guard against intrusion. The strongest of the worms claim the mineral-rich inner rings, while the young and the infirm battle for scraps along the edges of the crater walls. In the center of the void, shrouded by the swirling edge of the world storm, sits the Union. A mighty citadel raised by Barros in the Old Land, the Union is a single column of twisted onyx at the peak of a coal-black mountain ending in a sharp, hooked point that forms the main tower, over a mile above the surrounding land. It is said to be completely indestructible. Even Ogun himself raining down rock from the stars could not sunder it. Though the Union is mostly obscured by the Worldstorm, it can be witnessed yearly during the Great Calm when the Worldstorm suddenly ceases to exist. This period aligns precisely with the start of the Gods' War, ending after a short hour as the winds and dust roar back to life seemingly from nothing. Thank you for joining us for the second episode of our God's Fall history series. And if you want even more information about our world, check out godsfall.com where I am putting together a God's Fall world book. I'm hoping to have detailed information and maps and character notes about everything that's happening in the God's Fall world so that all of you can play in this world alongside us. This is a much larger project than just one episode of the podcast. It'll take a little more time and we're going to have to raise funds to pay the artists. So if you want to see some of the mock-ups we've done so far, go to godsfall.com and there'll be links to that in our episode. I wanted to take this time to do a little DM's corner where I directly answer some of the questions you all have asked about the God's Fall world. A lot of you have had questions about how sexuality and misogyny are perceived in the God's Fall world. What impact do they have on my writing? And I would say there's not a lot of impact. 
No one's going to call a woman a member of the weaker sex when she can cast fireball. No one's going to mock a man for not being masculine enough if he can cast lightning bolt. Magic is a great equalizer. It can make a single person as strong as an army. There are representations of gay relationships within the very god tree itself. The old gods viewed sexuality as fluid, would take male and female forms alike. And for the most part, people have taken their cues from this. There are some areas of regression. Kadar would be considered a more traditional world. Everyone within that society is rightly or wrongly thought to have a place, and women are not exempt from that. As for the case with the God Queen, when we first introduced her as the princess, there was a moment in our game where we discussed that she was a lesbian. It really didn't play very well, and it's one of those things that I just cut out and then expect to get to later. However, my players went to unease sooner than I expected, the wedding came up sooner than I expected, and things just conspired for it all to line up. So I think that caught some of you by surprise. I'm not sure if it's a better story element that way or not, but she was always planned to be a lesbian. Phryne, I think we would all consider heteroflexible. <laughs> She's not really a lesbian. Uh, she doesn't really have serious straight relationships for that matter. She's really just in it for herself. I certainly think that she could be attracted to a woman, but I think that if she was picking out a choice for herself, it's probably going to be a guy. Zion's character was always going to be played as gay. Michael uh, stated that from the very start. It was going to play into his Kadarian upbringing. It was very, very strict. Again, much more traditional, where his sexuality may have been an issue. Para was actually supposed to be another player, but unfortunately they had to back out at the last minute. I think the idea of a podcast kind of frightened them off. But because it was way too late for me to write him out, I just kept him on as an NPC. The guy that was going to be playing him was gay, could very much turn out that he planned to be that way, but because of the interaction between him and Zion early on, it just made sense for his character to evolve that way. Now, as far as the royal line, the princess is now the queen. They adapted to her. She never would have agreed to marry a man. She's been out and proud, for lack of a better word, you know, since she was very young. Phryne was the most powerful fit, worked out well for her and her father, and that's how that union began. Another thing a lot of you have asked me about is what happened to the turtles. This is another good example of how some things can be dropped on the editing room floor or maybe aren't quite as clear as we understood them in-game. I'm not gonna lie, there was a huge cataclysm and several turtles did perish. However, most survived and every turtle with a name survived. Oliver is just fine. Phryne sent him home with a courier and he was taken directly to the little girl, which I honestly can't remember her name right now, and the other turtle, Shelly, uh, the old tortoise who would determine what crop was going to be the bumper crop by picking it out, uh, also fine. No problems with Shelly whatsoever. She managed to hide under a rock during the zombie attack. Oh, some of you have asked if we're going to do another podcast. Let me be clear. I have no intention of doing anything else except making God's fall as good as it can possibly be. Frankly, I don't have any other time. It takes up all the free time I have. I have about six, maybe seven seasons of God's Fall paced out in the long arc, so I can see myself doing this for quite a while. That said, I have been playing with a couple other ideas. If I decide to do any of them, I assure you, I'll announce it here first. 
So that's about all the questions I've got for now. If you guys have any other questions, please go to godsfall.com and check out the forums. Leave me a note. I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Or check us out on Twitter at GodsFallDC. And just another reminder, we've got tons more notes and maps and pictures and information on GodsFall.com. If you like what you heard in this podcast, you're really going to like what we've put up on the website. So thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next week for another actual play session of God's Fall. This show was produced and edited by Dead Ghost Productions. Find out more about us and all the shows we make at deadghostpro.com.